Hello, this is Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach, episode number 23. In recent years, Paul McCartney has talked about the appeal of doing a live show where he was not expected to perform all of his biggest songs. Ah, the price of fame. But actually, Paul did this very thing for a while, avoiding all of the hits and the songs audiences expected to hear. In February of 1972, Paul, Linda, and the rest of Paul's new group, Wings, performed 11 concerts. These were unconventional hit-and-run performances. Paul and the band would arrive unannounced at British college campuses, asking if they could play a free show for the students. A stunned administration usually said yes. In July and August of that same year, Wings did a more conventional tour of Europe, playing 25 shows. Set lists for these concerts are interesting. Because of McCartney's recent acrimonious departure from his former band, no Beatles songs were included during either 1972 tour. The closest Paul came was to end most shows with Long Tall Sally, the Little Richard song that he had sung with the Beatles. Instead, Paul sang his own new songs. The group would also play a number or two by Wings Band members, plus the occasional cover song that had meaning for him. One suspects that Paul included Blue Moon of Kentucky not as a nod to bluegrass legend Bill Monroe, but because Elvis had recorded it. Many of Paul's solo compositions from these 1972 concerts have titles now unknown to all but the most rabid fans. Songs like Big Barn Bed, Smile Away, Best Friend, Mumbo, 1882, and Eat at Home. Unfamiliar titles or not, Paul wanted people to hear these new songs, and he went on the road to promote his post-Beatle music. John Lennon later said that he liked Paul's song, Eat at Home. This is noteworthy, I think, because it indicates that John heard Paul's solo records. And for the truly obsessive, it should be noted that 1882 is a song Paul played at these dates that would remain unreleased for over 40 years. I refer here to obsessive McCartney fans. This is not a criticism. My love of the Beatles goes deep, but there are some who make my devotion seem like a passing interest. And that's fine. In 1972, Paul would not touch his Beatles material. Couple this with only a few radio hits of his own at the time, and he seemed to be free to play whatever songs he wanted. Even the hits he had charted as a solo artist by this time were largely ignored at these shows. His single Another Day had been big in Europe, and the multi-part Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey was a number one hit record. But hits or not, neither song was performed. To be fair, Uncle Albert would have been a tough number to recreate on stage. Paul's set did include some strong numbers that would become solo hits, such as My Love. Two other songs from these early concerts would later become well-known, but not as radio hits. The number Soily was heard by the masses, as Paul used it to close his first live album, and another, called The Mess, became famous with collectors because a live version of the song soon appeared on the flip side of the My Love single. But at the time of these concerts, Paul's set mainly consisted of songs unreleased and unknown to the audience. By 1972, Paul had already experienced an unusual radio career as a solo artist. Earlier that year, Wings released Give Ireland Back to the Irish. This was an unexpected political statement from McCartney, a song denouncing the killings in Northern Ireland known as Bloody Sunday. Give Ireland Back to the Irish was climbing the charts when the BBC banned it from airplay. Paul's music would soon be banned again, 
when the BBC told radio not to play his single, High, High, High. The first was too political, the second was too druggy. Paul got a lot of cred for these tunes, but not a lot of airplay. Aside from these thwarted solo hits, Paul himself made curious career decisions. In the middle of 1972, he released the single, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Some have said this was Paul's reaction to having his Irish hit banned by the BBC, but Paul insists otherwise, that he was just trying to make a children's record. Whatever his reason for recording the song, the single did make the charts, and Paul sang Mary Had a Little Lamb at his early live shows. Paul also played a number about a topic that would become very important to him, animal rights. His song Wildlife showed that his heart was in the right place about the treatment of animals, and for 1972, McCartney was way ahead of the curve. Songs about politics, drugs, children, animals, interesting choices, but did these songs make for a good concert? Paul is a natural showman and crowd pleaser. He must have thought they would make for a compelling program, and maybe they did. But one thinks about the audience at these shows as they collectively wondered when Paul was going to sing his Beatles songs. The answer was, as they discovered, he wasn't. Instead, the fans heard a set of new songs. This was Paul's new band, and he was playing new material. Period. I think he wanted to engage the audience and take them on his musical journey, but on his terms. Beatle Paul did not appear at these shows. Paul McCartney and Wings first toured the United States in 1976. Many fans thought these concerts were his first shows since the Beatles broke up, myself included. This is understandable, I think, since all of his previous concerts were in Europe, and the internet was not yet flashing information updates into the laps of all interested parties. But as discussed, Paul had been playing live shows without the Beatles since 1972, first by barnstorming college campuses, and then with full-on tours of Europe. The world tour that brought Paul to the States began in England in the fall of 1975, and these were Paul's first live shows in over two years. As this new tour did include the United States, it was an important one for Paul. The Beatles' last U.S. concert was in August 1966. This was a mere ten years before, but to those who lived through it, that decade seemed more like a century. The Beatles themselves had been through a lot. 1966 was pre-Sergeant Pepper pre-Yoko, pre-White Album, pre-Manager Brian Epstein's death, pre-Maharishi, pre-Abbey Road, and pre-Breakup with its aftermath of solo projects. 1966 seemed closer to the Civil War than to the mid-1970s. But now Paul was coming stateside, and everybody was excited. His Wings tour hit the U.S. in early May 1976, and stayed through late June. It was a big deal. Of the 30 songs played at these shows, only five were Beatle numbers. American audiences grumbled about this a bit, but five songs were a gift compared to earlier tours. When Paul left the road in 1973, his set still included no Beatle numbers. Now, he was either softening his attitude towards his past, or bowing to pressure to perform a few of these songs. Maybe Paul was influenced by audience reaction to bandmate George's 1974 American tour, where Harrison had included very few Beatle songs in his set. In spite of singing the five songs from his Beatle days, Paul stayed true to his new band. Denny Lane was given a solo number, but at least he sang a hit song that the crowd would remember called Go Now. Gone, though, were the Linda McCartney features that had been included on earlier tours. 
this show was wall-to-wall Paul. As a showman, it might have been tempting for him to end these American concerts by singing sure-fire crowd-pleasers like Hey Jude and Get Back, but Paul avoided the easy path. He played his new material to the very end of each show, closing the night with a song the American audience had never even heard before, Soily. That's guts. Or let's call it confidence. Since 1989, Paul McCartney has toured the world many times under his own name. The Wings moniker has been decommissioned, and he no longer seems to find it necessary to prove himself as a solo artist. Paul appears to have made peace with, if not embraced, his famous past. Now, instead of avoiding the Beatles catalog, every new tour finds him searching out fresh songs by the Fabs that he has not yet performed in concert. The change from ignoring the Beatles songbook to celebrating it came quickly. When Paul toured in 1979, he had only four Beatle numbers in his show. A decade later, his 30-song concert included 15 from the Beatle catalog and two covers, half the set. That's quite a switch and a percentage that holds true to this day. The one time I saw him in 2013, there was plenty of Paul's own material, but he wasn't shying away from the Beatle book. And he appeared equally happy whether playing the Wings hit Junior's Farm or the White Album pre-metal rocker Helter Skelter. Was it the 1980 death of John Lennon that made Paul reassess and maybe come to terms with his Beatles past? I don't know. I opened this episode citing Paul's good-natured complaint that he feels somewhat trapped, being obligated to play certain songs at each concert, like Live and Let Die and Yesterday. I find this lament telling, as I have always taken an interest in what non-hits Paul includes in his meticulously planned live shows. McCartney has well documented his own concert outings, releasing more than half a dozen live albums. From these releases, some years back I put together a CD of songs he had performed in concert that were not hits. I called the collection Paul's Picks. I felt these were the songs that Paul wanted us to hear from his post-Beatles career, even though they didn't make it onto the radio. A few choices are promotional in nature. That is, they are songs that were out as singles at the time of the tour, but failed to chart. Most, though, are album tracks Paul seemed to think highly of. The songs that make up my Paul's Pick CD are pulled from his more recent live releases, meaning since 1990. I include the lesser-known jewels We Got Married and Put Her There, but my set also includes what I feel were questionable inclusions in Paul's live show, such as Biker Like an Icon. The CD is more than listenable and mainly enjoyable, but I would not use my Paul's Picks collection to convince someone of McCartney's viability as a solo artist. Even so, I like it fine. Pop over to the house and we'll listen to it. Today's Vinyl Approach is an example of a podcast script that took on a life of its own. I had originally meant to profile three or four artists discussing how their big hits had become a trap for them at concert appearances, but as I began to write my first overview, I found that I had a lot to say about Paul some of it interesting. I should have known that approaching a Beatle would not allow for a brief examination, and that has certainly been the case today, so I'm going to wrap up this episode and continue this set list topic next time. This has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time. Okay, we clear. 
Okay, well, that's pretty much the podcast. There were a couple of points that I wanted to make, but feared would take me too far off course. So let's consider the following uh, to be bonus tracks. The first has to do with Paul's record, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. This was the first single released using the name of his new band, Wings. Give Ireland Back to the Irish was recorded immediately after the Bloody Sunday killings of January 1972, when British officers shot and killed 13 civil rights protesters. The single was released within the month of the murders. It's not known if Paul's hiring of Northern Irishman guitarist Henry McCullough had anything to do with Paul's decision to write the song. Give Ireland Back to the Irish was banned from radio in England for being too controversial. The single went to number one in Ireland. Politics and controversy from Paul. Oh yeah, John wasn't the only political Beatle. This shouldn't really come as a huge shock, though. Paul complained publicly when the Beatles were booked to perform in front of a segregated audience in Jacksonville, Florida. They refused. Paul told an interviewer that the Beatles were not accustomed to segregated audiences, and John reportedly said from the Jacksonville stage that the Beatles had never played for a segregated audience and they weren't going to start now. The group's contracts for future performances included a clause that prohibited audience separation by race, and this was in 1964. Asked about it in 1966, Paul called the idea of segregated audiences stupid, probably to the horror of Beatles manager Brian Epstein. I equate Paul's political single Give Ireland Back to the Irish with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young's Ohio. Neil Young wrote this song only days after the Kent State campus shootings of May 4, 1970, when the Ohio National Guard shot student protesters. Four were killed and nine others injured. Within weeks, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young recorded and released Ohio. Unlike Paul's Ireland single, Ohio was not banned by American radio, although some individual radio stations refused to play it. The record went to number 14 on American charts and did about the same in Canada and the Netherlands. It did not chart in Ireland. The second footnote I have to this podcast has to do with audiences at Paul's early solo concerts. I mentioned that fans were probably surprised by the amount of unfamiliar material they were hearing, but I wonder how did they react? Were people yelling song titles at the band throughout the show? There are a few audience recordings from some of his 1972 dates, but the ones I have heard are of very low fidelity and don't provide much help. In today's podcast, I talked about Paul's penchant for documenting his tours. There is the live album from the 1976 U.S. tour, plus his world tours of 1991, 1993, 2002, and various one-off gigs like Unplugged. But Paul's shows prior to the 1976 Wings Over America tour are not well documented. This is another reason why most thought the 1976 tour to be Paul's first solo outing. And yet, as with a lot of Paul's solo discography, it gets complicated. In 2018, McCartney did release a collection of live tracks from his 1972 tour of England, but this live set was only available as part of an expensive 11-disc box set of expanded versions of the albums Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway. It was a limited edition box and is now out of print. Amazon does not carry this deleted item, and eBay has no copies of it. Discogs lists this Wings box, but they also currently have no copies for sale. When they do have it in stock, the price is in the $1,500 range. I would like to have that 1972 live material, but not enough to spend $1,500 to own the, quote, 
Paul McCartney Archive Collections Limited Super Deluxe Edition of a box set of two of McCartney's lesser releases. I am not alone in wishing that Paul would make this 20-song live collection from 1972 available as an individual release. But to repeat, Paul's track record of official releases as a solo artist has always been frustrating. Returning to the question, was Paul badgered by his first solo audiences to play Beatles songs? The officially released live material is taken from a variety of concert dates, so I am assuming that any Beatles song requests shouted at Wings have probably been edited from the tape. But as I say, I haven't heard it. Send me your copy. I promise to return it in good shape. And with those two points expanded upon, let's actually close out this edition of The Vinyl Approach. I'm still Tom Wilmoth, and thanks for listening. Sing Mary Had a Little Lamb? Are you insane?